Well, the book of Acts, 28 chapters, approximately 1,000 verses, spanning 30 years the life of the early church, and spanning two continents, Europe and Asia. In that span of 30 years, church, the followers of Christ grew from 120 followers in that upper room to nearly 100,000 Jews alone, not including Gentiles, according to many scholars. If we take this book of Acts and combine it with the Gospel of Luke, for reasons I'll mention in a moment, we have nearly one quarter of the entire New Testament. If we combine Acts with the four Gospels, we have 56% of the inspired New Testament dedicated to the topic of the origin and the growth of the church. Why? Why would God dedicate so many words and so much ink to this topic? What does God want us to know and to believe? Church, I believe the answer is this, that God wants us to know not only who Jesus is and what he did, but what Jesus is doing now in building his church and ushering in his kingdom. In other words, God wants us to know the acts of the risen Lord Jesus. What an apt title, I believe, for this entire book of Acts and certainly for our introduction sermon this morning. Oh, church, there is so much more in Acts than good stories and compelling narratives. So much more. It's a book written to assure, assure you and me that Christ may have left this earth, but his ministry continues on. It has not ended. The life, the death, the resurrection of Christ is not the end of the story. No, it's not. The risen Christ is reigning and he's carrying out his saving purposes according to his plan through his church today. So the theme of our message as we launch into this wonderful book of Acts is this. Be assured the risen Lord Jesus Christ is reigning from heaven. With that in our hearts and minds, let's now turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1, starting with verse 1. We have in our New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the book of Acts. So please turn there, and then I'll pray as we begin our new sermon series this morning. Dear Lord Jesus, we're asking this morning that you would teach us, that you would, as the risen Savior, who is alive and reigning today, minister to us through your word that's about to be preached and through your very spirit. Lord, I ask this morning, if we're a little sleepy, that you would awaken us, that you would stir us this morning, that you would animate us. Lord, I I pray for a little holy agitation this morning. I don't want to agitate this morning, but Lord, may your word, may your spirit do your work. Lord, thank you that you are here this morning. 
as we open up your word. Do your work. We now, we now pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, let's look at Acts chapter 1, the very first verse. Let me read it to you. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. I want to pause there. Even in this first verse, we have at least three questions before us this morning. Number one, who's writing this letter, this book? Number two, what was this first book that is being referred to? And thirdly, who is Theophilus? Well, I believe the answer to all three questions can be found, surmised, in the introduction to the Gospel of Luke. So I want us to go there. We'll post it there on the overhead that we can read it together. Luke chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 to make this connection for you. We read the Word of God. saying Luke 1, 1. Inasmuch as many of you, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that had been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught the author of Luke and of Acts seem most plainly to be one and the same. Luke, who is referring back to his first book, The Gospel According to Luke. In other words, Luke has some unfinished business to do. He wants to assure this Theophilus that what Jesus began to do and teach in the Gospel of Luke was true and being fulfilled. The Gospel of Luke wasn't the end of the story. There's a sequel, and it's called the Book of Acts. Now, we don't know exactly who Theophilus was, other than being the recipient of these two books. But what is clear is that Theophilus was in need of some assurance, of some certainty regarding the things that had been taught. Why was this so? Well, If we date this book of Acts around the early to mid-60s A.D., then it had been 30 years since Christ had departed this earth. 30 years. And there was some explaining to do. A dead, alive, now departed Savior and a persecuted church. And what was this Jewish sect anyway called Christians who were being persecuted by many of the Jews, and included these uncircumcised Gentiles as part of their following. Well, to quote one commentator, since the church was undergoing persecution, as Acts so vividly vividly portrays, Theophilus, or anyone like him, might have wondered if that persecution was God's judgment on the church for being too racially broad with his salvation. Was God really at work in the church? And was Jesus really at the center of the plan? How did the promise become so broad? And how could a dead Savior bring it to pass? Yet, 
the Christian church was continuing to grow and to multiply in spite of, or maybe because of, the persecution and hostility they were encountering. Furthermore, there were reports of these signs and wonders that God seemed to be doing to attest to the power and the word of Christ. But could this new startup, could this community of Christians be for real? You ever ask that question? You've been meeting here at a middle school, Palm Vista. Lord, is this real? What you are doing? Well, God used a Gentile named Luke, a first-rate literary historian, also a traveling companion of Paul, as we'll read about later in the book of Acts, to document, to research, and to answer these questions, and to say to Theophilus, and to say to us, oh yeah, it's real. It is real. To record and preserve right here a theological history of the birth of the church and to show that it indeed fulfilled God's plans. You see, this name Theophilus means loved by God or loving God. It could be a name that refers to a historical person. It could be a name that refers to all those who are loved by God or love God. But it's certainly a story, and it's a true story that we all need to know because the story continues today. See, the implication is clear from verse 1 of Acts 1 that Jesus is still doing, Jesus is still teaching his ministry and work continue. Note that verse 1 does not say in reference to his gospel, I have dealt with all that Jesus did and taught. No, the key word is what he began to do and teach. So as we see in verse 1, which is my point one, Jesus is continuing to do and to teach. As John Stott points out in the commentary we referenced, Christ's ongoing ministry sets apart Christianity from all other religions. The founder of every religion completed his ministry in his lifetime. But not Jesus. We're not gathered this morning in memory of Jesus. This is not a memorial service that we're conducting this morning. Neither is this some charitable benefit or fundraiser that we have going on this morning for the cause of Christ in Miami Lakes in the world. To help the cause of Christ. Christ needs no help. Christ is alive and he's actually working right now in our midst. But didn't Christ say upon the cross, it is finished? Well, yes, that is true. In regards to the atonement for our sins. Yes, there is no more need for sacrifice for our sins. Our sins have been paid in full. Yes, in that sense, it is finished. But that's not the end, church. It's just the beginning. When one completes, certainly high school or college, we have what we call a commencement service. Commencement means beginning. Well, why is the final act of graduation called a beginning 
a commencement. Well, I believe it's because the person who is receiving the diploma is beginning a new life. Grad school or the workplace, whatever it may be. You see, Jesus died and was raised to new life. And he ascended in his glorified body to heaven as the risen king. It may have been the end of his earthly ministry, but it was his beginning of his reign in heaven as the incarnate Son of God. Oh, he had been with God from the beginning, but this was the beginning of his reign as the incarnate in the flesh Son of God, who is now ruling and reigning. And he is at work right now. And his saving power and his work is clearly on display as we go through this wonderful book of Acts, where we see the ascended Jesus pouring out his Holy Spirit on his people at Pentecost. We see the ascended Jesus appearing to individuals like Ananias and Paul on the road to Damascus, where the ascended Jesus is healing paralytics like Aeneas. I love what it says, what Peter says in Acts 9, verse 34. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. The ascended Jesus in the book of Acts is opening hearts to the gospel. A businesswoman like Lydia. And he is saving souls. In Acts 2, 47, we read, And the Lord, I believe contextually that is speaking of Jesus, added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I love that. Who was adding to the number? The Lord Jesus. You got it? He's everywhere. He's all over the book of Acts. He is working. He's speaking. He's healing. He's saving. He is building his church. What we have preserved for us in Acts are select accounts of Christ building his church. But it wasn't all that Christ was doing. I love the final words in the Gospel of John. It's the page before our introduction to Acts here in your Bible. We read these words in John 21, verse 25. Now, there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. See, what we have here, church, is a, it's a wonderful book, but it's, it's a select theological history of what Jesus was doing in the world in which Theophilus lived, the Roman Empire. Luke is showing Theophilus, and he's showing us what the rule and the reign of Christ looks like. All right? In a day and age when Christ's kingdom had been inaugurated, begun, but had not yet been consummated, completed. In other words, he's showing us what Christ's kingdom looks like between Christ's ascension and his return. See, Theophilus needed to know that. But you know what? We need to know this as well. Why? Because we live, don't we, in a fallen world of sin, of suffering, of disarray. It's often hard, isn't it, to interpret history. It's really hard to interpret my own history, what is happening to me as it is occurring. And it's especially difficult in the midst of pain 
of persecution, of suffering, and of slander. Sometimes it's just hard to see Jesus in our world. Where is he? What is the king of the kingdom doing? I can't see you, Lord. Don't know what you're doing. There's a lot of chaos happening down here on this earth, in my life, in my world. Yes, even in the church. Even in our family of churches, which we're going to talk about on August 26th, church family meeting. Hope you can be there. But Lord, you're saving people. We're planning churches. We planted one in January. And yet church leaders are being accused and slandered. What is going on? It's hard to know. How, Jesus, are you at work? But this I do know from the book of Acts. Jesus is at work building his church. But it's not without suffering. And it's not without obstacles. But the question still remains. If the ascended Christ is continuing to do and teach, how exactly is he doing that now? In other words, by what means? How do we recognize what Christ is doing and teaching? How do we recognize his ministry and his work? Well, that leads to the second point. Number one, Jesus Christ is continuing to do and teach. How? Point two, through his church. Let's read on now verses two and three. I'll start from one again and read these three verses as a block. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now verse 2. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Please notice in this text, Christ was not taken up. That is, he did not ascend to heaven until, until what? After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To whom? To the apostles. See, the apostles were the eyewitnesses, weren't they? The eyewitnesses of Christ, of the resurrected Christ. And those whom Christ had personally chosen, or in the case of Matthias, later on in chapter 1, had providentially chosen. In fact, the traditional title of this book of Acts in many English Bibles is this, the Acts, this is in my Bible, of the Apostles. The Acts of the Apostles. True. This book does feature many Acts of the Apostles, especially in the earliest stages of the church. But I want you to catch this as well. The book of Acts is not just about the acts of the apostles, but it's about the acts of the ascended, risen Lord Jesus through the apostles and through those who receive the apostolic witness. The message of Acts is that Jesus will continue to do and teach and fulfill his global cosmic purposes. Yes, even in the absence of Peter, Paul, Philip, and the like. They are dead, but Christ 
is alive. And he's ruling and he's reigning. Christ is now exercising his reign and rule in and through the church. And he hasn't stopped doing and he hasn't stopped teaching. And his plan now is to do it through you. So what are we to teach? What are we to do as a church? Let's go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 2, where we find the clue. Before Christ ascended to heaven, he gave commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. What were these commands given to the apostles? Presumably, they were the commands or orders that we see down in Acts 1, verse 4. This orders to wait, to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But as we read at the end of Luke's gospel, remember these are like volumes 1 and 2, we have a parallel account in the last chapter of Luke that closely parallels the first chapter of Acts. And what we read there at the end of Luke is this, that the commands to wait for the Holy Spirit were preceded by the command to go, the command that is to proclaim the gospel. I want us to read that. We're going to put it up on the screen. Luke 24, verses 44 through 47. We read, Then he said to them, This is Christ. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. He's now speaking to the huddled disciples. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Al is going to be preaching next week more on this topic as we continue our series in Acts. But I want to make this point. The apostles and now we at the church were Christ's appointed means to take what Christ had taught and to proclaim it to the world. Namely, repentance, as we read, and forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. Well, how are we to do this? By proclaiming, by preaching the word of Jesus. His death, his resurrection, in the fulfillment of God's plan to reach, yes, the nations with the gospel. Jesus started with the apostles and now his teaching continues through his word, through his church and by his word. That leads to the next point. Through the church and A, by his word. You see, the word proclaim, logos, figures prominently in this book of Acts. It's not incidental that the book of Acts, about one third of it, is speeches. You may wonder, you know, you're reading this narrative, and why does Luke like spend all this time like he stops in this quote this long, lengthy speech? Well, it's clear that God builds his church through the proclamation of his word in obedience to his commands. 
It's what we're doing right now. It's obvious. I'm speaking right now. For those who know me, it's obvious. I'm finite and I'm fallible. But it's just not me speaking right now. Jesus is continuing to teach through his proclaimed word. So you understand, we're not not just reading Acts here as some biography, historical biography. We're not just reading about what Christ said and did through his church. Neither are we studying Acts as we might study a textbook, seeking to understand the significance of, of, of Christ's work. As if he were dead, but his ideas lived on. We come to the book of Acts as we read any other book of the Bible, believing that Christ is alive and Christ wants to address us and that Christ is teaching us. Believing that we're hearing from Christ now as the word is being taught. So we're not merely studying his teaching or rehearsing his words. Christ is teaching. Christ is doing even now. In Christ's church, ah, it's being built. And I trust growing. It's what we see in the book of Acts. In fact, the whole book of Acts can be divided into or organized into a series of six summary statements regarding the word and the growth of the church. The first of which we read in Acts 2.41. This comes after Peter's spirit-empowered sermon at Pentecost. We read these words. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Notice the connection. Word and people added implied saved. We read again in Acts 6, 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And, and, the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Third example and final. This wasn't true just for what was happening in Jerusalem. It wasn't true just for the Jews. For after we see the first Gentile convert in the book of Acts, we read the following in Acts 12, 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. See, it's clear from Acts that the proclamation of the word and the growth of the church go hand in hand. Isn't this our hope at Palm Vista? It's why we preach Christ. It's why we preach expository sermons. It's why we preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And it's why I'm so excited that we're going to take almost an entire year to go to the 28 chapters of the book of Acts. Church, it's the same Jesus who is ruling today. It's the same word. You know what else? It's the same Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, who has been given and now poured out on us as a church. And that leads to the final point, that Jesus is continuing to do and teach. How? Through the church, by his word, and now be through the presence, power, and leading of his Holy Spirit. The very reasons why the apostles were commanded to wait, to wait for the Holy Spirit. By His Spirit. 
If we miss this, we miss the main point, I believe, being made in this introduction to Acts. That the ascended Christ is no longer bodily present, but he is present, not only through his word, but yes, in particular, through and by his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit, which empowers us, which animates us for fruitful gospel witness. We miss this point, church. We miss the Christian life. If we're in Christ, we have his very spirit. We don't have a similar spirit. We don't have a duplicate spirit. We don't have less of his spirit or a portion thereof of his spirit. We have the spirit of Jesus. All of it, all of him given to us. I don't want to steal Al's thunder for next week. It's a great text. But I do want to make this point. The church through Christ is continuing to do and teach. And that church is a spirit-empowered and a spirit-directed church. The Holy Spirit in this book of Acts is mentioned 57 times. It's a major theme. In Acts, I think it is fair to say that every breakthrough or advance of the gospel in this book is tied to the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but how did the gospel spread to Europe? I think we have evidence that Paul indeed desired to go there. Of course, we know he did. But how it happened, you see, wasn't part of Paul's well-laid-out strategy. In fact, if you know the story, Paul was on his second missionary journey. He was planning to go to a place called Asia. At that time, Asia referred to Western Turkey. In fact, I suspect he was probably thinking of going to Ephesus, an influential port city. That was his plan. But what do we read in Acts? Chapter 16, verse 6. We read these words. He was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. I can only imagine what what Paul was thinking. Forbidden? Okay, Lord, you threw me for a loop there, but I think I'm tracking with you now. It's it's not Asia. You want me to go to Bithynia? Yeah, the port cities, modern-day Istanbul. Gotcha. Good move. Influential port cities. Gospel spreads. Yeah. And then we read, but the Spirit, the Lord, did not allow them. And then Paul receives a vision in the night, a man calling, come to Macedonia, i.e. modern-day Greece, i.e. Europe. And so they went, and the gospel spread into Europe, for which we all ought to be grateful for just the Europeans hundreds of years later that we in this country have received the gospel. Why do I mention this one example? Because what is clear from Acts is that a man may make his plans, but the Lord, you know it, directs his steps. Sometimes in very unpredictable, unforeseen, and mysterious ways that could only be rightly attributed or tied to Christ's divine presence, to Christ's divine power, to Christ's divine leading through his spirit. 
the Christian life cannot be reduced to pro-con lists, to forecasting, to balanced budgets. I'm not against any of those. You would know that if you know me. (laughs) But there is a spirit-led dynamic that we cannot ignore as Christians, nor as a church. You see, if we simply relied on financial numbers, church membership, directory data, or church growth manuals, as to whether we should have ever planted a church this past January, I'm fairly confident to say the answer would have been no. We planted out of weakness. We planted out of smallness. Personally, my family and I are not down here in Miami because it's a part of my well-thought-out 10-year plan for Corey Smidge and the family. Don't get me wrong. I love being here. But this wasn't my brilliant idea. You see, all of my studies, all of my life experienced experiences pointed going back to Europe or to the Middle East. Miami was never, never on the radar. We didn't adopt our daughter because she fit into our budget, because she fit into our schedule. She simply did not. We didn't adopt her because of the wonderful sermon or blog illustrations (laughs) she would provide. That wasn't on the radar. Who was on the radar? Was the Holy Spirit. Yes, God. Providentially leading us, guiding us, and pouring out faith into our very hearts for the things that we believe that he wanted to do for his glory. It was a spirit of God. Yes, we consulted friends. Yes, we desired to exercise wisdom in each of these cases. But there was something, or I should say someone more, that we must add to the equation, more than our logic and cool calculations. It's the Holy Spirit. Church, can you relate? I think many of you can. But I also suspect, I don't know, maybe this isn't the case, that some of you may be getting a little nervous right now as well. Because of how the book of Acts has been used by some Christians to support, to justify all types of crazy, quote-unquote, spirit-led behavior or a pneumatology that simply hasn't served the church. I've been there, charismania. But I, I, I want to give you the fine print here, and it is, it is important. Many of the problems in interpreting Acts come from failing to take into account the redemptive historical purpose of Acts. That is, Luke's intent in this book is to give us select accounts of how in, in congruency or accordance to his plan, the gospel went forth from Jew to Gentile, from Jerusalem to Rome. You see, all that is descriptive in Acts is not necessarily 
prescriptive or normative. For example, just because the apostles drew lots to determine which man would replace Judas as part of the apostolic ban, as we see in Acts 1, does not mean that we as a church draw lots to determine church leadership. I think most of you hopefully can agree with that. All right? However, primarily descriptive, as opposed to prescriptive narrative, doesn't mean it is any less inspired by God or that it shouldn't inform or teach, encourage, and inspire us. Have you been watching the Olympics this last week? Any of you? Come on, yeah, you know it. I've been killed by the late nights, okay, watching the Olympics. I get sucked in just about every night. Well, since one of our children has been involved in gymnastics this last year, we've been as a family particularly interested in the gymnastics competition. Not just the competition itself, but the personal stories behind the team, particularly the U.S. woman who has a team won gold. But as I heard these stories of these little gymnasts, something happened a little bit in my heart. Wow, Jordan Weber stood on one leg at age one. She was involved in gymnastics by age two or three. Think of Cindy. Our daughter's three and a half. We've got to get going. We've got to get moving. It's too late. You know? I mean, these thoughts are floating in my head. I mean, Gabby Douglas moved to Des Moines, Iowa for top-notch coaching. Nah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Marianne. Can't do it. But hey, how about Bella Caroli, that Russian coach? Hey, where does he live? <laughs> then I remembered, hey, Daniel Leva? Hey, man, he's a, he's a Miami boy. Yeah, his, his coach, his dad, Universal Gym and Doral. Hey, we could go there. And then we read the stories. We see the stories of Ryan Lochte, the swimmer, you know, lifting 650-pound tires, you know, as exercise. And I'm thinking, hey, how we can get one of those tires, man, for our boys, you know? <laughs> he's like, what's going on? You know, this year it's tires. Four years ago, it was Michael Phelps's diet. Remember that? They had all oh, his caloric intake and diet. Yes, Michael Phelps eats 18 pancakes, three subs, and a bowl of spaghetti for breakfast alone. Ah, the recipe of a champion, you know? <laughs> We're just like, yeah. Church, we ate Michael Phelps, okay? Or Ryan Lochte. I don't believe we have any gymnasts, future gymnasts or Olympians at least, in my household. Ah, You see, what is descriptive can quickly become prescriptive. We feel that we need to do or experience the exact same things to be successful as a gymnast, as an Olympian, or as a Christian. Church, let's let Luke, let's let the entire whole of Scripture help us determine What is being described, primarily descriptive, and what is prescriptive, i.e. normative, for us today? We're going to attempt to do that as we go through the book of Acts. But let's be inspired, let's be moved, and let's be stirred by what we read. See, I have a concern this morning. It's not just just for you, it's really for me as well. It said in studying Acts, we might dismiss the work of the Holy Spirit as the work of yesteryear. 
Yep, that's the way God moved back then. In those countries. In those places. As if he couldn't or wouldn't work that way here. Let me illustrate what I mean. What we have in Acts is a, you could say a picture of God. What we have is a picture of Christ, really. A picture of Christ's work and his ministry in and through the church. But what we don't have in Acts is an old, outdated photo of God. Friends, God does not age. And God does not change. Let's not make the mistake of treating Acts as if we might view an old photo of our father or a family member. Hey, I've never seen a photo of your father there. Can you show me one? Oh, sure. Got one right here. Here's a photo. This is back in the day when he, he had hair. And he could bench 300 pounds when he ran a lot. I mean, he doesn't look that way today. He doesn't dress that way today either. You know, different day, different age, different era. We may not have experienced all or much or any of that which we've seen or seen the book of Acts. Dramatic, angelic jailbreaks. That's pretty cool, Peter. Supernatural airlifts to different places. Yeah, Philip. The dead raised, Dorcas. Or to use maybe a little less extreme examples. Maybe we've never experienced dreams or visions, as mentioned, or prophetic impressions or words or sudden healings. Please, let not your lack of experience readily dismiss such work of the Spirit as only yesteryear's activity Rather, may God use Acts to explode, to magnify God's bigness, God's greatness, and Christ's work in our midst. Oh, that is my heart. See, the theme for the book of Acts that we've entitled it as, or at least on our banner, is Unleashed. Acts, Unleashed. It's rather fun, a little playful, a little provoking, and it really, it really holds multiple meetings, meanings. Excuse me. What exactly is being unleashed in the book of Acts? Well, you certainly can say that Christ's church, in one sense, is being unleashed, right? We see Christ's church birth, and then what? Persecuted, and then scattered to the nations, according to the divine plan. You could say the gospel, which is spread through the mouths of apostles and those that receive his witness, from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. You could say it's the Holy Spirit, in one sense, being unleashed after Christ's ascension, when His Spirit is poured out on all believers. But there is another subjective sense in which this word unleashed could be used. Not only is Christ's church, Christ's word, and Christ's Spirit being unleashed. But we could say in one sense, God is being unleashed. Or more appropriately, your or my understanding of God and the way he works. Of course, I want to make this clear. God can never be on a leash. To suggest that would be blasphemy. 
we're on the leash, okay? <laughs> He's not. But we can attempt, can't we, at times, to put him on a leash. Hey, bro, what, what are you doing this morning? Ah, it's out for a walk, morning walk. Well, what do you got in your hand there? Huh, just a leash? Really? Well, what's on the other end of that leash? Oh, it's just my, my, my God. Yeah. You know, I kind of want to keep him on the sidewalk, out of traffic, you know, and, you know, he's a little out of control, you know, my, my God here. Sometimes, you know, when the garage door opens in my neighbor's garage, he, like, darts in. Sometimes he goes to the front door. He, like, enters my neighbor's house, and it's awkward. Yeah, really awkward, you know, and, and uh, you know, he's just a little unpredictable as well, you know, I just, uh, <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing. So I got him on a leash here. But you know what else? You know in our county? Yeah, there's a, there's a leash law in our county. Because, you, you know, the streets, public places, public square, there's really no place for one's personal God. Church, without even knowing it, we can attempt to put God on a leash or to use another common metaphor, put him in a box. This is what God can do. This is what God cannot do. This is where God can go. This is where God cannot go. But the reality is that a God in a box or on a leash is not the God of the Bible. It's a God fashioned in our own image. See, Acts is a marvelous book. It's an exciting book. And it can also make you feel a little uncomfortable at times. But may I suggest? That's good. That's real good. Well, God isn't always predictable. And his ways often are mysterious. There are certain things that God wants to make very clear. And he makes it very clear right here in the introduction to Acts. Jesus is alive today, right now. The kingdom of which is spoken about in verse 3 to the apostles has now been inaugurated by his spirit through the birth of the church, sending the spirit and the spread of the word, and it will be consummated. Church, there is nothing left to chance in this world. There's no such thing. It's all according to plan. The gospel is going forth, and nothing will be left untouched, even as we see in Acts, from the prayer room to the courtroom. Nothing untouched. The church is being built, and the triumphant progress of the gospel is certain. Suffering, persecution, rejection, and all. So here's my prayer for all of us as we begin this sermon series. At this series, that the Spirit-empowered proclamation of the Word and the Spirit-empowered demonstration of the Word would rock our world and witness to the world. That all would know that the risen Lord Jesus reigns right here, right now. Amen? Let's pray. Have the team come on up. Oh, dear Lord. Thank you that in the end it is you teaching. It's not me. 
oh Lord, and that which is of you this morning. I pray you would burn in our hearts. Burn in our hearts. I think our hearts would be like Velcro this morning. Oh Lord. That we would know, that we would believe that Christ, you are at work. Even when we can't see you. That you've given us your word. You've given us your very spirit to empower us and to lead us. So Lord, our confidence this morning is not in ourselves. It's not in our ability to lead ourselves. We can't. We have proven that. Our confidence is in you through your spirit and through your word to lead us and to direct us into a life of fruitfulness. Oh, according to your plan, that the world may know that you are the risen and sainted Christ. And in Christ's name alone, in Christ's name, our risen Savior, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.